This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the Library of Congress National Book Festival, co-chaired in 2009 by President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. Now in its ninth year, this free event held Saturday, September, September 26th on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even if you can't attend in person, you can still participate online. These podcasts with well-known authors and many other materials are available through the National Book Festival website at www.loc.gov bookfest. It's now my pleasure to talk with the critically acclaimed author, Nicholas Sparks. Mr. Sparks has written an array of admired novels, including the New York Times bestseller, The Notebook, A Walk to Remember, and Nights in Rodanthe, each which were adapted into blockbuster films. In addition, the movie version of The Last Song will hit theaters in 2010. Mr. Sparks, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, start out just a little bit with uh, your background for people who might not know. What made you decide to pursue a career in writing? I have not the slightest idea. <laughs> I think it was, uh, it, I, I started writing on a whim to see if I could do it. I was running, uh, at, at that point in, in my life, I was 19 years old. I was a full scholarship athlete at, at the University of Notre Dame, and I was going through a period of injuries and I was very frustrated and my body just didn't seem to heal and so over the summer in between uh, my freshman and sophomore year you know my mom she just got tired of me pouting and she said well don't just pout do something and you were an athlete correct I was an athlete yeah, yeah. and uh, watching my career go up in smoke and I was just a bitter you know I was just real sad about that and my mom so she said this and I'm I, I give her the old sulky teenage what, what should I do she said, well, I don't know. Write a book. And I kind of said, okay. <laughs> I had nothing else to do that summer. So I wrote my first novel at the age of 19. It was terrible. It took me about six weeks. Uh, I actually finished a 300-page novel. Uh, went back to college, majored in business finance, didn't know what I wanted to do out of college, wrote uh, a second novel, also not very good. Uh, moved on with my life, got married, had kids, um, and I guess when I was uh, 28, I was selling pharmaceuticals, and I really had always been the kind of person who wanted to chase a dream, and I said, I know, what can I do and keep my job, because I, of course, had bills like everybody else. I said, what can I do to chase a dream and still keep my job? And I said, I know, I'll try writing again, but I'll give it a real shot. And the novel that came out, and I was uh, was The Notebook. And had you done much writing before that first novel? No. <laughs> I was a very good student. I was a very good student. Uh, you know, I got A's in my high school English classes, but I got A's in all my classes. And so I wasn't a, any better at writing than I was at, at, at mathematics or physics or anything else. I just, I always loved reading novels. I loved stories. I, I loved to, to turn the pages quickly and just be caught, so caught up in a, in a world of imagination that I, I, I just, I grew up doing that. My parents were big readers. And so I decided I wanted to give it a whirl. Is, is your success at all surprising to you, given how sort of spontaneously you, you got into this? You, one would think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it's one of those, it's been a very blessed career. I've been, I've worked with wonderful people. 
I, I will say that I've worked very hard on the novels that I've, I've written to make them as, as good as they could possibly be. But there's certainly no way you could ever predict the kind of career that I've had or the, uh, the good fortune that I've had. So, yeah, it, it's always a bit surprising. Now, we uh, solicited a few questions from some of your fans on our Twitter feed, and the first one that I want to ask you says, are there real-life experiences that inspire you to write your love stories? And I know that uh, you know, this has happened, and I think in particular a lot of members of your family. Is that correct? Yeah, a lot of, uh, most of my novels, especially the early ones, early ones were drawn uh, from events in my family, uh, whether it was my wife's grandparents served as the inspiration for uh, the notebook, and, and my father, after the death of my mother, served as inspiration for, for Message in a Bottle. These, um, these you know, you, you draw from wherever when you're a novelist. You, you, you certainly draw characters from, from people that you know, or, uh, or at the very least, people you know in your, in your mind, so to speak, people that you can make up. You, authors are more than anything observers of the world, so mm -hmm. that is what, then they try and take these observations and put them into words that people can understand. Mm -hmm. So I drew from these experiences when I was certainly starting out, and even now when I'm dealing with novels that, I don't, that aren't necessarily drawn as specifically, um, certainly you know, there, there's still elements of, of personal stories or characters or people that I know. For instance, in this last book, you, you might say the, the younger brother, Jonah, he's a lot like my son, Landon, for instance. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I've read that your uh, Catholic faith is, is very important to you. How does that manifest itself in your work? I, I, I am. Religion, spirituality is very important to me. Uh, and how does that manifest itself? Well, I don't put much. Pro I don't put profanity in my novels. I don't write about adultery, and I, tr I, I don't try to shock the reader, so, so to speak, uh, with horrific scenes. Any love scenes that I do tend to be very uh, timid, tame, you might say. They're very tame. Mm -hmm. they're, they're probably PG rated. They're not even PG thirteen. They're PG rated. I kind of slide through the whole physical act. It's all the build-up anyway. So, you know, yeah. they might kiss passionately and then you get to it and it's a sentence and it's over. And, and the sun, and you move sun comes up the next day, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. So it, it, it's kind of like that. And uh, But th there's no question that, that my morality leads me to it. And, and in fact, that's one of the things that I'm most proud of when I look back on my career in, in, is that I haven't had to resort to these these shocking things, profanity or excess sexuality or excess violence. I haven't had to do any of that and have still had the ability to keep readers interested and coming back and reading more and, and, and really caring about the novels. And how do your uh, fans react to that? I mean, do they ever question whether that's uh, true to life or, or realistic? Yeah. Oh, there's no question. There's no question. I mean, there's plenty of authors who do it the other way, and I certainly know that profanity exists in the world, and there's books for people who want to, who, who don't mind reading that. Now, I don't necessarily mind reading it, but I do get a lot of letters from people who thank me for writing the kind of books that I do. Mm -hmm. Now, you're often hailed as a writer of romances, although you have said that that's a misconception, but your books do deal with the ups and downs of love. Why is that such a universal theme in, in your books? 
Well, I write dramatic fiction. You know, I, I do. I write dramatic fiction. These, uh, these are love stories. Love is always an element. But the goal of dramatic fiction, since its earliest stages, when you go all the way back to Sophocles and Euripides and Aeschylus, was to, and they were writing plays way back when. They, they were called the Greek tragedies. And what those were, are, those were works of dramatic fiction. And what they intended to do was to move the audience through the full range of human emotion, whether it's happiness, sadness, anger, frustration, bitterness, envy, love, loss, tragedy. You want to move the reader through all of them. A romance novel does not necessarily strive to do that. A romance novel is a little bit different. It's more of a, it's a fantasy romance. And that's not denigrating that genre, but it's not what I do. They're, they, they're not required to move the reader through the entire range of human emotion like a love story is. Mm -hmm. So because I'm supposed to move them through the entire range of human emotion, love is a central element of that, and, and it always will be. Now I'm going to go... So, okay. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to go to another question from the Twitter feed. Uh, this one sort of gave me a chuckle, but it says, Why does someone almost always die in your books? <laughs> I would say to them they have to read all of my books before they lump me in that. Okay. <laughs> again, I mean, I've, I've written happy endings, I've written tragic endings, and I've written bittersweet endings. And, uh, yeah, even there, there might be someone, there, there might be a book, most of my books may have an element of loss in them. But, again, it goes down to the function of the genre in which I work. To say, if you don't have loss, in a, in, a, in a novel like I write, in, in the dramatic fiction that I write, it's like trying to write a horror novel where you don't get scared mm -hmm. or without a, a, a creature. You just can't do it. It's intrinsic to the genre. And that is one of the reasons why it's a very difficult and challenging genre in which to work because it's, some authors are very good at building suspense. Some are very good at you know, building terror. Some are very good at building fantasy. Uh, but but in the work that I do, you have to evoke the full range of human emotion, and you have to do it without manipulating the reader or resorting to cliches or melodrama and things like that. So when you say, why do I have loss? Why does someone die? It's because that's what this genre is all about. Mm. That is what Ernest Hemingway did in A Farewell to Arms. That is what William Shakespeare did in Romeo and Juliet and Anthony and Cleopatra and Hamlet and Othello. All of these fictional, these dramatic works, they're really trying to move you through the full range of human emotion mm. so that when you read a book like this, you're not reading, a, you read a thriller to be thrilled. You read a horror novel to feel scared. But in this, you read the book, it's as if what your goal as a writer is to move this reader through the range of emotions that they feel as if they've lived a whole life cover to cover. Yeah. And if you eliminate one of these major emotions, well, you kind of got a hole. You wouldn't feel as real because everybody has lost in life. Everybody falls in love or has love in some way. Now, seven of your books have been made into movies, uh, very well-received, of course, which include The Last Song, Dear John, and The Lucky One, all of which are going to be released next year. Why do you think it is that your movies are so well-received, or I should say your stories are so well-received, both on the silver screen and on the printed page? Well, I think that, that goes down to a number of factors. They, they tend to be characters that actors want to play, that studios want to do, because they fill a hole in their let's say they're programming, so to speak. I mean, if you're looking at a major studio, you're looking at 
at Warner Brothers, for instance. You know, they'll do a Batman, which is, okay, we're, we're targeting this particular audience, uh, you know, young men, you know, or teenagers and people like that. So, so they have all these little demographic groups that they want to hit. The simple fact is there's very few people who write what I write. There's very few people who really try to cover this full range of, of human emotion. Um, offhand, I can't name another one. There have been there, there, the Horse Whisperer, the Bridges of Madison County, these writers still write, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily writing the same things anymore. So it's, it's kind of as if I have a little bit of a monopoly, you might say. For instance, there's a, a, a charming young woman in England who has a monopoly on books about kids who go to magic school. <laughs> you know, and, and that's why, and those were adapted well. Yeah. And, and, and it's just, if you only have one or two people working in a genre, you know, the, the studios kind of have to take a look at you. Mm-hmm. And then you, then you add in the fact that all the movies have been very successful and, you know, they're, they want to make money and sell tickets and yeah. people pay to see the film. Now, I want to ask you about the last song. I was fascinated to learn that you wrote both the screenplay and you're writing the novel, but you're doing the screenplay first. Um, does this pose any particular challenges? Uh, there was a time. The time, I suppose, was the biggest challenge because I didn't commit to the project until August and they needed to be filming by June. And you have to go through, of course, the entire writing. Then you go through two polishes. You have to have it in time so they can get a director and scout scenes or scout locations and get everything in process. So they needed to have the screenplay by, by January. And that's a, that's a, that was a tough timeline because I had three distinct tours last fall. I had a, a U.S. book tour. I had a European book tour. And then I had... I was part of the media campaign for the film Nights in Rodanthe. So I had a movie tour. Mm. So I'm traveling and then coming home and trying to write a screenplay and then traveling and coming home and trying to write a screenplay. And I was fortunate that I got it done by the end of November. December went through all the polishes by January. Then I had to turn immediately around and start writing the novel. And that, of course, was coming out in September because there was a clause in my contract that said the book there the novel had to come out by September 15th. So it was a busy year. I suppose <laughs> the timeline was the was the only was the only challenge. Now my understanding is the last song is a project that has been developed specifically with Miley Cyrus in mind, is that correct? That's correct. And is that the first time that that you've worked on a project of that nature with a specific actress in mind? Oh, without question. I, I am a novelist at heart, and I still consider myself a novelist. Um, even when I was writing the last song, the novel, which I'd already done the screenplay for it, once I moved into the novel, it was no longer Miley Cyrus. It was written, from my perspective, to be the best possible novel that it could be, uh, irrespective of how well the film did or who was going to go see the film or whether Miley Cyrus was in it or any of those things. I sat down with the intention of writing the best novel that I could. And I always do that. You never know if someone's going to buy one of your novels and make it into a film. It, it, it's a crapshoot yeah. out there. I, yeah. I've been very fortunate. I've been very lucky. But what, what can you say? So it's Ronnie and not Miley, right? It is Ronnie. But she did name the character. The character was actually named after her grandfather had passed away. His name was Ronnie. And so she, I offered her the opportunity to name the main character in the novel and the film. She 
she chose Ronnie, so I call her Veronica, and she shortens it to Ronnie. So. What's it been like working with her? She's a nice young woman. Yeah. Nice young woman, uh, very busy. She was she finished Hannah Montana, filming for Hannah Montana. She went right down, started working on the film. She filmed right through probably a few weeks ago, and now she's out on a music tour. She'll do that for four months, turn right around, and, and work on Hannah Montana again. Very busy young lady, uh, very kind, wonderful family. You tell she cared about the project, and, and I think she enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Now, I was interested to learn about your friendship with Olympic gold medalist Billy Mills, and you two wrote a book together, correct? We did. I was 25. That was the third book okay. that I wrote. It was called What Can You a Spiritual Allegory. It was uh, it's just a short little spiritual allegory allegory about overcoming loss, the, the secret of how to be happy in life. And, Bill and Billy and I did that. We've been friends since I was probably 12 years old. I grew up, and we lived in the same town growing up, and I was a running nut even back when I was a little kid. And so I'd see him go into the grocery store, and I'd say, wow, look, that's how an, that's how an Olympic gold medalist looks when they buy bread. <laughs> that's how they move, you know. <laughs> look at him standing there. Standing there, he looks fast. So, I mean, I was, I was as starstruck as a kid could be. I ended up dating his daughter for about four years, and I've stayed close with the family ever since. In fact, when we go to California, I always stay with Pat and Bill. My ex-girlfriend, of course, she's married and all this. She calls me the boyfriend that never went away, the ex-boyfriend that never went away. So. <laughs> but it's all in good fun. I see them all. They we're very close with the family. I mean, we're the godparents of all all of Billy's daughters, including ex within their, of their kids, and their our kids as godparents. I mean, it's my parents uh, died when I was young, so they kind of filled that role for me. Okay, I want to ask just briefly about some of your work beyond the printed page. Tell me, what is the Epiphany School? The Epiphany School that my wife and I found with uh, Tom. He is the headmaster of the school. It is uh, Who, who's, who's the headmaster? I just. Tom, Tom McLaughlin, and okay. it is, um, it's grade 5 through 12. It's a college preparatory school, very strong academic school. It's got sport. Uh, it's a Christian school, but you don't have to be Christian to go there, and we don't teach any specific doctrine. We feel that's best left to families. And it is a school that is really tries to embrace the new globalization, but not just with catchphrases like, oh, we'll teach world economics and call ourselves a global school. No, by the time the, the kids who go to the Epiphany School, they'll enter school as a freshman. By the time they graduate from high school, they will have visited 23 countries on six continents, spent 213 days abroad, and become fluent in Spanish in addition to taking these other classes. So it is a school that, that really tries to expose these kids to the world, to see other cultures, to, to see that people around the world are more similar than they're different. They're, this is something that's probably, I guess if you're in Washington, D.C., you have a lot more people who've traveled the world, but if you're in the rural south in a very small town, you have a lot of families who never leave the county in their entire lives. Mm. So this is a really wonderful way to expose them to to Europe and to Asia, to Africa, to, to various places around the world. Now, you also sponsored a family that was displaced by Hurricane Katrina. How did that experience affect you? Well, it was a 
it was a good experience. It's something that we felt, my wife and I felt that we should do, like everyone. You know, you watch the footage, you're just mortified by it, and you wonder what you can do. And there's certainly a lot of worthy causes. We just decided to sponsor a family, move them up to New Bern. They're still here. I still talk to them all the time. Uh, great people. They're back on their feet and, you know, working, doing all that stuff. They actually got jobs here very quickly. And so I, it, was, it was a very good experience. Um, something that I that I don't regret, and I, I don't know. I've always found that the more you give, the more you receive. And I know that's a cliche. It's something I would never write in one of my novels for that reason. But it's very true, nonetheless. My wife and I feel it's it's important to to do a lot as much as we can to help other people in various ways, and we just tend to do that following our instincts. Mm-hmm. And so. If we see this, we're going to help. If, if we see a need for a school, we'll start the Epiphany School. I, of course, work with underprivileged kids on the, on the track team as well, uh, the local public schools. So there's a lot of different things that we do, and it's, I guess, part of who we are. Uh, Nicholas Sparks, before I let you go, I, I have to ask, we've talked a little bit about some of the other things that you're working on, but is there anything else that's out there on the horizon for you? Well, not so much. Uh, I, I suppose I'll be turning to my next novel here in the fall and trying to get that started. I think I need a little bit of a break after this last push because it was a very tough 18 months because I came right off the lucky one into the screenplay then into the novel. And and at the same time, we were building a house. Uh, my wife's father was very ill, and I was coaching her. It was probably the best high school boys relay team in U.S. high school history this year. So I was trying to lead, you know, we're traveling every weekend for these track meets, doing all this stuff. So I think, aside from writing, we're probably going to be a little bit quieter this this year. And I think it's something that both my wife and I need. 14 14 novels in 14 years sounds like a very grueling pace. It is, it is. And and then there was a nonfiction book in there, and I'm working on another nonfiction book that I should finish here within the next two or three weeks. And and I'm scheduled to do another nonfiction book. Yeah, plus my novels. It's 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 a lot of it's a lot of it's, it's life. Like everyone, we've got things to do. Well, Nicholas Sparks, I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And we're definitely excited to hear more from you at the 2009 National Book Festival. That's on Saturday, September 26th on the National Mall between 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. For more details and a complete list of participating authors, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. From the Library of Congress, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you so much for listening.